podcast is brought to you by Welcome all you QT faithful to your 16th and final Tarantino Bible study of season one, where each month we sat down and took an intense look at one of the major scenes from that month's movie. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back to the show, making his fourth appearance, the host of the B News USA podcast, Mr. Pat Fournier. And together we will be taking a deeper look at the Gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Chapter 27, the home invasion scene. Welcome back, Mr. Fornes, and may Tarantino be with you always. And also with you. Thank you for having me again. It's, it's a pleasure. It's a blast. Uh, I'm so glad to be here again. It's amazing that this will be the last episode, regular episode of the first season. It's uh, amazing that it's gotten this far. I can't believe that we've reached the uh, the end. You did? Uh, yeah. I, well, I did the first season. Yeah. Now now the chaos <laughs> of figuring out season two, how to get this all put back together. <laughs> when you set it up and you go, once upon a time will be the end, and you think, it's December, and I'm setting this up back in last November, a year ago as we're recording mm-hmm. this. Never think we get to this quickly. It's like, wow. I know. We got here quickly. We really, yes. really did. I, I still remember our first phone conversation. It feels like it was a couple of weeks ago. You know? It was, I think, February or March yeah. time frame, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I remember how I found out about you, which was listening to Craig Cohen's podcast, who was my special guest on the main episode. And he had the podcast of Conversations with Jack Rebbe Slims, basically just talking about Pulp Fiction. And I listened, and I got him on. I got you on and Ryan Rebelkin off of that. And obviously, my friend Petros is the one who turned me on to it, and he's been on. So just very strange that a year ago, I don't know any of you. I just listened, started listening to this podcast, and then all of a sudden, here we are. Here we are recording in your brand new home, and I'm still in my yes. basement. Yes. <laughs> and, and thanks for having me. I, I was so excited when, because, uh, yes, I, I, I was on uh, Craig's podcast and it was, it was a blast. It was an honor. And I started listening to your podcast, the, this podcast that we own. And all of a sudden, I, I think it was via Facebook. I, I made a comment <laughs> yeah. on, on one of Craig's, uh, you know, posts or something. And you were like, oh yeah, I liked the episode that you were on. It'd be great if you came on, on, on Church of Tarantino. And I'm like, wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I think I Facebook stalked you too. I like friend requested you and I was like this guy's gonna think I'm some kind of psycho <laughs> and I was excited because I was a, a listener you know and yeah 
when you're a listener and, and, and you get invited to be on, it's, 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 it's exciting. It's cool. Well, it's nice now that it's, it's got a little, I'm, I'm not saying a lot, but it's got a little more cash in it than the beginning. So at the beginning, it's almost like begging for change. Like, please, sir, please come on my podcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you again? And now, well, and now some people are like, hey, I'd like to be on it. So, it, you know, it's nice to have that as the shift as opposed to being like, I would write down names like, okay, I would like to have this person for this one <laughs> and for this. And then I'm like, uh, let's see if they're going to say yes or no. You know what I mean? So now, like I said, not that everyone's says yes, but now I have a little bit more of a bigger sword to swing, I guess, to yeah. want to ask, hey, would you like to be on? So it's a little more legitimate now that I made it a year. When you're, uh-huh. two, when you're two episodes <laughs> in, people are like, I'm not sure this thing's going to fucking last. But I think by the time this, you know, by the time January 1st comes around and the Django Unchained 10th anniversary special hits, which is two days before the first, it will be 34 total episodes in all. Oh, wow. I think so, yeah. I think, um, that, well, actually, maybe more. I, maybe I can't count real well. 16 of these, so we have 16 Bible studies. I did technically 14 regular episodes. So it'll be 35, because I did 14 ready, because I did Kill Bill, I split them up into two, mm-hmm. and I did the whole bloody affair. Well, I, I put it together. I mean, let's not pretend I did an extra episode, but still, it comes out as an extra. Then I did the birthday special for Tarantino, and I will have mm-hmm. four special uh, anniversary episodes. So that'll put me at 35 episodes after that. Not bad. Yeah, yeah, not bad. <laughs> not as much next year. Next year, I'm still like it down a bit. <laughs> I'm excited for next year. We, we're, not, we're, not, we're not divulging anything, but uh, it's, yeah, it's a good Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm we're going to change a few things up. But this uh, this may actually be the last Bible study because the thing I've decided to do for next year in this place, I don't know I'm going to call it the Bible study given that we both know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm, it may still keep it just because it's the name, but I don't I don't know. It doesn't ring true because we're, well, although we are studying something else. We're but, still in the yeah. church. So. Yeah, but, so I'm trying to lean towards the other part of the church that that stuff happens in. Mm-hmm. People yeah, are thinking we, 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 they're talking yeah. about molestation. <laughs> they're no, talking about the no, police not, touching Not me. that, not that, no. <laughs> that's season five. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if this, somehow this is still going at five years, that means Tarantino still hasn't put out a new movie. So yeah. that, yeah, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is an official end date and that's the day that he puts it out. We'll finish a podcast. Maybe I'll do two or three extras of them and that'll be that. And then if he puts out a new one, then I'll dust it off and we'll have a special episode yeah. for the new episode. Yeah, for sure. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bible to the book of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, chapter 27, the home invasion scene. But we are here to talk about the final technically scene. You know, it's one long scene, but the, the final, final scene act, the third of act. his last mm-hmm. movie that he's put out. So we are here to talk about the home invasion scene. Yes. The big bad boy. Now, this scene starts with the ominous march of Celio Drive by the three members of the Manson family to kill Sharon Tate and her friends. The occupants of the house at Celio Drive that evening were movie actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, and the wife of film director Roman Polanski, her friend and former lover Jay Sebring, a noted celebrity hairstylist, Polanski's friend Wojciech Frykowski, and Frykowski's girlfriend Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, and daughter Peter Folger, also present on the property, were William Garrison, the caretaker, and his friend Steve Parent. Roman Polanski was not at the house that night as he was in Europe working on a film. In a fortuitous turn, music producer Quincy Jones, who was a friend of Sebring and had planned to join him at the house at night, ended up not going. Now, when the movie was promoted, or I shouldn't say promoted, but the lot of talk was that this is a Manson movie, mm-hmm. that he's going to be talking about the day that Sharon Tate was killed. Yep. The film was originally scheduled to be released on August 9th, 2019, on the 50th anniversary of the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends by the members of Charles Manson's family, before Sony changed the release date to July 26, 2019. Joan Dyden, in her collection of essays titled White Album, theorized that August 9th, 1969 was the day the hippie movement, the free love era, and the 1960s as a whole came to an abrupt end as a result of these murders. And so everyone going in who is of an age that knows what they're talking about mm-hmm. had probably the same feeling, and I'll ask you, 
going in, I thought, okay, this is very ominous. The whole movie, I'm sitting there going, oh, shit. Yep. I know how this is going to end. And then it starts. And then I'm like, I'm trepid because I'm like, I have a feeling he's going to handle this well. How? But what if it doesn't go off well for the people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. What if they give him shit because he decided that he's going to handle the Manson murder? And it's never been put on film before. We've all heard about it. You've read books about it. It's never technically been put on screen in a way that you get to see what happens. So as they're walking up the drive, and I'm thinking... All right, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> when you the, first saw the film. Yeah. And you knew it was marketed as a Manson movie because that's uh, what Sean Wheeler said on, we were talking a little bit on the last episode of November when we were doing The Hateful Eight. He talked about that, you know, a little upset that the Manson, you know, this has been talked about a Manson movie and then there was no Manson technically in the movie. Mm. So he was a little kind of shocked because he, you know, he didn't watch the trailer. So the whole time going in, he thought there's a Manson movie. When you saw this start, what was your thought? Did you think, oh, fuck, here we go. I had no idea what was going to happen. And I was, I, I was like you, I, I was, I was nervous. I was like, how is he going to handle it? And I'm like, there's no way it's going to happen like it happened in real life and he's going to show it. There's no way. So, it's, But at the same time, what else? You know, I, I was confused. I was nervous. I was really like, I'm like, what is he going to do? Like, I know he's going to pull a rabbit out of his hat, but I have no clue how. Like, I have no clue what type of rabbit he's going to pull out of what kind of hat. Because he he put himself in a corner and us, you know, viewers were like, oh, okay, so now what's going like, to happen? Like, it, Well, I think he put us in the corner and we thought he was in a corner. It was just a fake yeah, wall behind right. him. Right. Correct. Because <laughs> he keeps it going, right? So we had the great scene with Uma Thurman's daughter, you know, fucking mm -hmm. hightailing it out of there, a little levity. The character Flower Child, who is shown having cold feet and who flees the scene in the 1959 Ford Galaxy, is based on Linda Kasabian, who became a witness for the prosecution in the murder trial of Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins. In real life, Kasabian was ordered by Tex Watson to wait in the car, during which she heard the murders inside the Tate residence take place and witnessed the murder of Wojciech Frykowski outside the house. Kasabian claimed she wanted to drive away, but was too scared. Then this starts, and like you said, it's tense, and then we cut to this very almost... Complete opposite in contrast of a scene, but you got Rick fucking Dalton singing in his pool. Mm -hmm. Dalton is listening to the 1966 song Snoopy vs. the Red Baron by the Royal Guardsmen. In the mid-60s, a reoccurring element in the peanut comic strip was of the dog Snoopy fantasizing about being a World War I fighter pilot battling the German ace Baron von Richthofen. This novelty song was based on that theme, and it made it all the way to number two on the charts right below I Am a Believer by the Monkees. It's such a contrast because it adds more tension to the scene. Yes, Because the course. first time you see the film, and you have the background knowledge that we have. Obviously, if you're younger, you don't. And so no. you're just going in this movie like it's a regular movie. But you have the background knowledge of these events. We've got QT leading us to believe that Rick was down the hill, drunk in his pool, loudly singing while listening to music with headphones on, while Sharon and her friends are going to be brutally murdered right up the hill from him. That's exactly right. what he's setting up for us. He is setting up. Here they come. They're walking up. There's Rick, the only other person probably home who can do anything about it. He's in his pool. He's well toasted. He's not even paying attention. He's got his headphones on. He's singing a song. And he is not going to be able to help Sharon. And you're like, fuck. But then, like you said, he pulls the fucking rabbit out of his ass. <laughs> because as he walks up, as we got Tex and the two ladies walking up, you know, we don't know where they've stopped at the moment until he sends Sadie off to see if there's another door. And then we realize, oh, they are actually stopping at Rick's yep. house. And you're like, oh, okay. Now, <laughs> when you saw this, 
Did you think that QT was going to have them kill Rick and company instead of or along with Sharon and her friends? Well, I think he sets it up in the car when when they, they stop they stop uh, in front like they stop in the little cul-de-sac and Rick comes out with his a picture of uh, uh, margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> Get you some candle ass off the street. <laughs> and and so so they turn around and they stop down the hill and this they start talking. Oh my God, it was, it was Rick Dalton. Blah blah blah. I grew up watching him. Yep. And 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 one of the girls says, "Well, you know what would be cool, man? Uh, <laughs> you know, in the Cheech and Chong kind of <laughs> kind of vernacular." And she says, "Wow, if we if if we killed the people that taught us how to kill, you know." And so then he's setting you up that they're actually going for Rick and and Cliff's house. And then you realize that Cliff is not scared of anybody because he challenged earlier in the movie, you saw him challenge uh, Bruce Lee to, to hand-to-hand True. combat. So he However, said, he is tripping balls yes. on LSD. So, so that does change yes. a few things for him. So so it's it's double the tension because he's going into a house with Cliff Booth, who's, you know, we we, we pretty, we, we know by now that he's, he's, you know, he's okay with hand-to-hand combat and he, he can hold his own even against Bruce Lee. It was a, it was a tie technically, uh, but Card, like he's, the car like says otherwise. <laughs> but yes, but he's tripping balls, like you said. So so it's like two tensions. Like he's he can hold his own. He's not scared. Plus he's got the dog. But at the same time, he's completely wasted out of his gourd. So and and Rick is not hearing. Like Rick is completely absent. He's he can't hear it. He's he's completely oblivious. As my grandfather would say, he's as useful as tits on a bull. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Cliff by himself, completely, you know, high as a kite, and the dog against three, the three, you know, three of the biggest, yeah. you know, killers in in twentieth century, you know, most infamous killers. So, well, I'm glad you brought up Brandy. What a magnificent oh, beast! Yeah. Makes Lassie look like a fucking punk ass little bitch. <laughs> All right, I'm doing that well, Lassie. <laughs> Fuck you, Lassie. Brandy's the fucking shit. Yes. Brandy was played by a total of three dogs in the film, Sayari, Cerebus, and Siren. At the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, Sayari won the Palm Dog and was there to accept the trophy. And she knows something's up fucking instantly, which is, she's just a great dog. We're going to get into her a second because we're going to talk a little bit about the difference of watching this film Mm pre-novel and now watching it post-novel. And there's a big difference, and I... Thank Tarantino for that, because he brings the book out almost a year to two years after the movie. Yeah, two years, because it came out last summer, so mm-hmm. it's fantastic yeah. for that reason, but we're going to get to that in a second. But Brandy barks, and then we've got high off his ass, <laughs> balls dripping everywhere. You've got the great Cliff fucking Booth doing one of QT's classic needle drops. Once again, perfect. He begins the climax of this film with Vanilla Fudge's straw. Mm-hmm. And Cliff is trying to fucking prepare Brandy's meal, tripping fucking balls. Wolf Tooth is a fictional Tarantino vs. Brand dog food featured in this film. It comes in several distinct flavors like rat and raccoon. It's just, it's it's such a great moment because the whole movie, he is in complete control. Like you said, like he's got yeah. full faculties and now he's like, says, you know, this is the time I'm going to smoke this cigarette. It's my last time hanging with Rick. And he's like, and here we go. And he goes off. <laughs> and away we oh, go. Oh, man. What a and great... you know, I know you and I are fans of true romance. And that's that's like a little, almost like an Easter egg. I don't think it's intentional, but, but uh, you know, and true romance, the the, the character that um, that Brad Pitt plays. Okay, I'm, I'm blanking yes. on, this, on this name now. Uh, um, wow. 
I'm I'm surprised. Florence. There you go. I okay. was like, your favorite movie ever, <laughs> no, and you don't know his blanking. name. <laughs> I'm just blanking. Oh, Old age sucks fart. ass. Yes, it does. Uh, Floyd. So he's totally Floyd in that scene. Like he's he's yes. laughing and he's making making comments to himself. Like he's talking to himself, but everybody can hear him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's a good callback to that. I, I, yes. I really appreciated that. But but if if you notice. Uh, he sets us up, QT sets us up early in the movie when he, when uh, uh, Brad Pitt, when Cliff Booth prepares Brandy's Well, I was going to get his trailer. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I stole your thunder. It's just another great nod of writing, right? Such subtle nuance that we, that you miss. Like, you're not paying attention. But because of what you said, when she was whining, because she starts, mm-hmm. she barks, and he thinks that she's once again, like we saw in the trailer, mm-hmm. after the first night, she's that she's whining, for she's impatient for the food, but she's not barking because of that, that he comes around to talk to her. Like, we're not going to do this again. Like So we already have context of why he's going to have this conversation with her again. But when he comes around, he's holding one of the cans of dog yes. food, which yes. is going to be huge yes. in a few minutes. But at the moment, you're just like... You don't think about it. It's just something that seems natural. It's like you don't see it coming, but it's such great nuance when he does it. And like he suddenly realizes yep. that he's tripping, but there's a moment that his senses kick back in. He's like, wait a minute. Something's that's, going that's, on. that's a different bark. Like that's yep. not a bark of I'm impatient. That's a bark of something's fucking up. And he knows. And he turns around and then in comes Tex and, and <laughs> the ginger fucker <laughs> <laughs> comes in. And then uh, Sadie comes in the, the, the back door, the side door. And this is another, again, combination of great set dressing because they don't see Brandy because the couch is leather, almost True. the same color as Brandy. And, it's and she doesn't fucking move. She uh-huh. is as still as can be. She just sits there, doesn't bark when they come in. She just waits like vicious killer waiting to be let loose, just <laughs> hangs there. You don't, you don't even notice. You're like, oh, huh. Do you notice that? Now, when she's hanging there and then she's about to move a bit and he just puts his hand up, which they don't see. They, one, don't see her and they don't see his hand move. Once again, we know what that is because of the prior scene. But for those of you who have not read the novel, there's a lot of backstory you're yep. missing out on. Mm-hmm. And as I said in our last episode we did together where we talked about the novel, it's told mostly from the point of view of Cliff Booth. This movie is Rick Dalton. The book is Cliff Booth. We get more yep. of Cliff's story in that movie. Or in, I'm sorry, in that book. In the book yeah. And we learn about Brandy. Brandy was bred as a fighting dog. Brandy has killed many dogs. Brandy's former owner, who (laughs) Mr. Cliff Booth befriended a bit but then fell in love with the dog, was going to make Brandy fight against a dog he knew he should probably get killed by. And Cliff Booth stepped in. And that gentleman disappeared. And now Brandy is his dog. And so the two We're of them. We're not saying anything. We're not, you know. So the two of them are good friends. So he was a part of the help training, but after a while he kind of saw the ways. We all, there's also a lot about Cliff you don't know about. Just his, You get to learn a lot more about Cliff. He is not to be fucked with. Not to be fucked with. And once you read the book and then you hear Tarantino's talking about why he does not believe he has a one iota disparaged Bruce Lee. He's talking about Bruce Lee as a, a fantastic martial artist, but he's talking about Cliff Booth as a war veteran who is special forces, who kills at will, who has had to kill at will. Hand-to-hand combat yes, with a knife. He's a, yes, he, he, he knows how to do that. Yes, exactly. He You're knew on what to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and if you read the book, you understand why he said yeah. to do it again. Cliff let him hit him. That's the thing everyone doesn't understand is when Bruce Lee hits him first, everyone thinks, oh, Bruce is fast. He was rope-a-doping him. He knew if he let him hit him, he would do the same thing again, and Cliff would be ready for it. And that's why he grabbed him midair and slammed him into the car. 
Bruce Lee was probably saved from being hurt because of them stepping in. Not yeah. because Bruce Lee's not a f- fast as shit and probably would have, you know, he would have probably fucked up Cliff a little bit. But at the end of the day, Cliff was going to fight him to the death. And I don't know if Bruce Lee knew that. And I don't know if Cliff knew that, but I think that's where it was going to go <laughs> if it had gone further. It would have been a whole different, <laughs> different once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. It would have been a whole different murder <laughs> instead of the murder of Sharon Tate. But if you get to read the novel, you get to understand why Brandy's so vicious and why when her action, which we're coming up on, happens, why it's so like, holy fucking shit. It's because she was bred as a fighting dog. And she knows all the cues, which is why when he finally does release her, that's the cue. But I love that she just sits there and literally blends into the couch. <laughs> I, it's yeah, so I didn't awesome. That. I, I didn't realize that until you said that. And then we get the great. <laughs> Are you real? I'm a real <laughs> donut, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> And he's not no. even scared. He's amused. No. He's like, what? Because he's, well, I mean, he, nothing scares him. You know, no. like, he's not no. scared of anything. He's seen death many times. If it's here, it's here. Well, you know, he's not afraid of it. But of all the Mexican standoffs that Tarantino has, this may be the funniest because it's the only one where really he's in no position. There's not really a standoff. One guy's got this Batman esque fucking Joker revolver, mm-hmm. dirty hairy gun, and Cliff Booth has got a can of wolf's tooth dog, dog food, food and his fucking <laughs> finger pointing at him. <laughs> and he's tripping balls. And yet, technically, he is in a Mexican standoff because they do not know that Brandy's on the couch. So, Technically, while Cliff may not technically have a weapon on him, he has a weapon with him. They don't see it. So it is an actual, true, mm-hmm. honest Mexican standoff that they just don't realize that they're a part of. True, they have three to him, but one's got a gun. The other two have knives, and we know what happens to them. Yeah. <laughs> As they said in Death Proof, you don't have some people with knives, they get shot or stabbed with their own knife. Now, what were your feelings on Cliff Booth? tripping balls in the scene. Do you think it adds or takes away from it? Do you think him not being full faculties, not being G.I. Joe ready, do you think it helps with this scene or do you think it takes away from it makes it too comedic? No, I think it adds to the tension because sober Cliff Booth, you know, is, you know, he's, he's a force to be reckoned with. He's a hand-to-hand combat. He's a, he's a vet. You know, he killed people in combat. We know this from the book, actually. But but actually, in the movie, they they, they allude to the fact that he's a, he's a veteran. He's a war yes. hero, et cetera. So, so we already know he's got, you know, combat uh, experience. But I think it's funny. I, I, I really love it. Like I, I said, it, it, it arcs back to, um, you know, it, it brings us back to Floyd and true romance. It's just he plays it so good because he's very comedic, but he's not over the top. He's, no. he's he's not Jim Carrey, you know, make, making yes. faces. It's, he's do, he's doing a great job. Brad, Brad Pitt is just he's funny. Like a lot of people don't give Brad Pitt enough credit for being funny. Like he's really funny. And the laugh that he that, that cackling <laughs> laugh, <laughs> I think it adds to the tension because it adds to the tension because the people get in come in, in the house thinking that they're gonna find you know whatever like a couple of people sitting on the couch watching TV and it, and then all of a sudden they walk in and they see this this dude who's standing in the kitchen and he's starts laughing and it's like wait we're supposed to be scary and this dude is laughing like yes. you, you, it, it, they kind of like they, they don't know what to do because they, they, this it's not what they plan they got way more than they bar- bargained for they don't know who cliff is they don't know his past they don't know his you know his capacities his, his trainings and stuff and also he's high and he's laughing and it's like what's going on here at the oh you know it's like it's like a twist on them like they they really didn't see it coming like they broke into the wrong house because <laughs> really you don't have jc bring with with his uh you know a uh, hair dryer uh, you know in front of you no 
oh no, this is not it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you probably should have went to the next house just then. But you know, so I, I think it adds to the comedy, and it's comedy in a in a really ten, tense moment, which which I think works really well. Like when you have something really tense and you break that tension with humor, and at the same time it brings more tension because you realize that the Manson family members are like whoa okay what's going on here like they're so confused this is not what they thought was no. going to happen and i think it's re really great i think some of that is too is why cliff is laughing a bit is because besides being high he isn't afraid they no. are afraid this is their first i mean they've talked about it and all this other stuff and we end up we know what happens in real life what they really do yeah but they're they're nervous they they are fucking nervous and what you're saying about the comedy is when one of the more subtle moments is sadie standing over by the door she's coming the back way and he looks over her and he goes hey and she doesn't say anything and he kind of looks yeah. at text he's kind of like pointing right. like what's this bitch's problem what, kind of thing what's up with it's her? such a great, <laughs> it's a great non little moment and it, it's it's so not the reaction that they were expecting the people that they were entering the house to have like they were no. expecting people to be terrified oh my god and you know and to be in control they're no longer in control because cliff is laughing and he's yeah. looking at yeah like like that little like what's up what's up for her and the guy the text is probably going Okay, what's going on right now? This is not at all what I had in mind. You're, you're supposed to be terrified. You're yeah. laughing. Well, they were also supposed to be getting Rick Dalton, and they forget that. I mean, it's almost like they forgot yeah. they went into Rick's house because, like, who else is here? And they're like, mm -hmm. they were supposed to be there for Rick Dalton because that's who he saw, and they're in a different house. So they, I think even then they're like, did we enter the wrong house? Like, I think there's a part yeah. of them that's confused as to whose house they've walked into because I think they were expecting Rick Dalton. That's who they were expecting to go kill. Robe, it was you know, there. Yes. In his yes. robe with, his, with, with uh, like four or five uh, margaritas and that's this not no. what they found <laughs> no no it's not now when you first saw the film how did you think this mexican standoff was going to end and then uh, this was the second part after reading the novel you then know there's no other way that it could have end once you get the backstory of cliff and brain like when you first watch the movie it's like shit i don't know how this is going to end but then once you've seen the movie but then you read the novel you go oh yeah the ending tarantino gave us is so true because of the extra backstory we get from the novel you go it's the only way it could have gone in this scenario, unlike if they'd gone up the hill to the uh, Tate Polinsky residence. The ending was deliberately omitted from copies of the script in order to keep it secret from everyone, including the studio. The only persons who really knew the ending right at the beginning of production, apart from Quentin Tarantino, were the lead actors themselves and a close friend of Roman Polanski's whom Quentin Tarantino showed the entire script. Robert Richardson said that he and other crew members were only told of it two months prior to filming the climax. Others knew much later in filming or even during post-production. An example would be that of Margaret Qualley, who only found out through Brad Pitt while filming at the Spawn Ranch set. Well, back in the late 90s, I had bought the Helter Skelter book, the Bulliosi book, and I read it front front to back. So, I, you know, and it's excruciating details, everything, like every detail you can ever want to know about those murders is in that book. So I knew everything from the get-go, like at the very beginning, when uh, when Cliff gets in his car, you know, he, he brought uh, Rick home and he it gets home in his car and you see Cielo drive like right away. Like I, I, I got, you know, that, that little detail and the reference and everything. So well, also Kurt Russell is doing a great job of literally narrating the whole evening, which is on purpose. You know what I mean? Right. He narrates it up to the point where they get home and then he stops, but he's literally narrating every moment. So you're like getting ready for it to come. Like Tarantino is leading you slowly through Russell's narration of that day of like, oh shit, like building mm -hmm. attention that you think, yes. fuck at this time. Like, it's like you said, if you read the book, you know exactly around what time it yeah. happened. And so you're like, oh shit, here it comes. And then he does his revisionist history. <laughs> Ta-da. 
And, and the whole movie, we, we've been thinking that Cliff Booth is, is like the badass, the, you know, the, the, the coolest dude. And all of a sudden it's on him to stop the Manson family. And it's like, oh, this is, this is about to go down and this is going to be, and you're rooting for Cliff, like even more than when, you know, when he, he was fighting Bruce Lee or whatever, yeah. I mean, kind of rooting for him because he, he was being a smart ass and, you know, yeah. but there you, it's like real life. You, you like, you want it to be how it really happened that, that they found that dude instead of the, you know, Sharon Tate and everything. Yeah. So you, you just, you're rooting for, for Cliff in, in a big way. And we are about to get into the fight in, in a minute. But did you see it going that way? Did you see it? Like what we're about to talk about. Did you see? I didn't know. Yeah. It's like a lot of things with Tarantino. You just, like there's times why. you just that's don't why. know what's going to happen. Like that's I talked I about La Louisiana Tavern Massacre. Uh-huh. I did not, I mean, they're in the, again, Mexican standoff. You're like, oh shit, how's this going to turn out? And we think it's by now as fans, we should fucking know that's coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we should know, but because we don't know how he's going to turn it, we know it's going to work, but we're just like, I mean, at this point, a plane could crash into the house and that would, you know, we'd be like, all right, it seems like that was something we should have seen coming kind of thing. <laughs> But that, that's why I love his cinema. That's you know we, we I keep going back to to the uh, the scene in Pulp Fiction when when they they wake up in the basement with a ball gag. That, that, that's why I like his movies because <laughs> they, he just throws you curveballs and you go okay what's going on and how they're gonna get out and and yes. you know and that's that's what's exciting about it. And even though it's a curveball, you never feel cheated. Even as bizarre as the gimp scene, which we covered on the Bible study, or, or even the adrenaline shot scene. Which we cover. Like, you just don't know how things are going to turn out sometimes. Even the opening of, like, Inglorious Bastards, cover that too. Like, all these different scenes I've had a chance to cover, you don't know how they're going to play out, at, you know, all the way through. Reservoir Dogs cuts off the ear. I think, here comes fire. We're going to set a cop on fire, and no, he gets blown away. And you're like, what? You're just so sucked in. And then he's he's just such a good magician. He's ready to give the reveal, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit. He's like a David Blaine. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. yep, I put a dollar in here, and you're like, wait a minute, and you fart, and all of a sudden the fucking dollar blows out your pants you're like what how, how'd they come on my ass like, <laughs> he tricks us so many times but because he pulls you in at the same time he he, he gives you little crumbs in the movie and so yes and, and then when it happens when it happens you go well yeah i should have seen that coming now yes okay now i understand but because he does it subtly as yes. ian harry's said when we did the pulp fiction episode together he said you yes. drip fed it it's almost like an iv we it's not like hit us over the head it's not like right. i've talked to it. it's not like mm. like when like in the karate kid yeah. when well, Daniel's learning the crane kick. If you didn't think he was going to use the fucking crane kick to win the fight, <laughs> then you weren't paying attention at all. It was he literally gave it away. When Miyagi's like, "I got a special trick." Same thing in Karate Kid too, when he does a little drum thing and you punch this. He's it's all there. Like it's fed to us from the eighties. Yeah. Like, oh, I know what's coming. This way, he just subtly, you know, dr- drops it in, which is great. That's why I think he's so masterful. And, and so interesting. That's why I, I keep repeating the same thing over and over. But when I first went to Pop Fiction, it was a, it was a revelation because I'm like, oh, cinema can be like this, can be unpredictable. It could be like like you're saying, like, you know, previously movies, like they, they just, it's, they might as well write it on the wall. You know, this is, you know, <laughs> when they learn something, oh, it's going to come back. Watch out, you know. Yep. And okay, we got, we're about to talk about the flamethrower, but when he's talking, when Rick is talking to Martin Schwarz at the beginning and they're talking about the flamethrower, flamethrower, he does not say 
I still have it in my in nope, my shed. There's a there's a little cr- there's a little crumb that they leave. There us is that, a little crumb, yes. right? Yep. But 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 to your point, like versus the '80s kind of movies, he's not telling you. Yeah, I still have it, and it still works. So if he would have said that, yep. he'd be like, okay, well, it's coming back at the end. You know, it, yep. it would have been predictable. But he doesn't. He said, oh yeah, yeah, it was me. In other words, I know how yeah. to use it, but that's it. That's all he tells you. Just like the click. It's a callback. So when Rick is, or not Rick, when Cliff is ready for Brandy to eat, he clicks. Yeah. And she goes over and she eats. Standing there, he gave her the hand signal. And when <laughs> uh, I'm the devil and I've come to do the devil's work. Nah, nah, I was dumber than nah. that. <laughs> when Cliff recognizes the Mansa family members from his visit to Spawn Ranch, he can't remember Tex Watson's name. Tex responds saying, I'm the devil and they came to do the devil's business. The real life Tex Watson said this exact phrase to the victims at Sharon Tate's house before they were murdered. And I love that. And I was I was cackling in the movie theater because, like I said, I I, I was really you know I read that book and I I knew all the details of, of yep. the horrible horrible things that those people did and they're like the the boogeyman you know they, yep. they, were, they were like one of the biggest boogeymans of the 20th century they scared a whole entire you know country and and almost the world yeah. you know with, with what they did that night and for Cliff Booth to laugh at them and said nah and for Tarantino to to kind of blow that up and go nah it was some nah who's dumb nah, that who's dumb <laughs> that nah, was that and Text. I love that. Yes. It's it's like nah yeah. nah you're not such a badass you you just a little punk yeah. you know I love that 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 was like the cathartic for uh, for me and what's about to happen it was even more cathartic yeah and then we get the the and Brandy <laughs> leaps off the couch. Starts mauling this motherfucker <laughs> fucking death. <laughs> this <laughs> and if, if you've ever if you've ever been around a pit bull, you know how muscly, how oh, like yeah, an amazing intense oh my, bite. Yes. My God. The muscle on those dogs. And Texas, I mean, obviously not punching the real dog, but he's punching. Yes. And uh-huh. she doesn't bother her. First because of all, the, she's bull, a the head is the pit bull's skull is like made of like concrete for God's sakes. <laughs> he's wasting his fucking time. But <laughs> It's maybe, and we'll talk about it, maybe the most brutally violent moment yes. in his films because mm-hmm. Brandy fucks up Tex <laughs> before Cliff Entryway stomps his head into the ground. Then she's <laughs> off fucking up Sadie, which I give the actress credit. But it is the most annoying fucking scream she does forever. Like, I couldn't wait till she finally died because her screams of pain were so fucking annoying. Like, I the whole time, like, just kill this motherfucker already. Then Katie decides to tackle Cliff and accidentally <laughs> flip over the coffee table. She hits her head on the fucking fireplace, and he's stabbed in the side, which seems to bring him to. It seems yeah. like the LSD trip at that moment is over. The adrenaline is so high, but he still is like, whoa. Like, <laughs> he got stabbed. Cool. But that's it. Yeah, for a second. <laughs> and then he's like, motherfucker, you stabbed me, kind of thing. And he waylays way laser just brutally he smashes her face against a rotary phone kids if you don't know what a rotary phone is that's what a rotary phone is <laughs> they used to hang on the wall and it was made of pretty strong metal so he smashes her face into that she goes into a couple of pictures off a brick wall mm-hmm. then she makes love to the fucking <laughs> mantelpiece the fucking she gets slammed in that and then he slams off the coffee table and realizes she's already dead he's like yeah, alright like, okay, I'm all done right, with this next Now, that moment has gotten a lot of slack, and I have talked about it recently a couple of times when uh, talking about the violence in his films, and I've said that the most brutal moments have been when Tarantino is making a point and taking out an historical context on people 
who fucking deserved it. Hitler and his crew get way late, get fucking obliterated, obliterated in Inglourious Bastards. <laughs> All the fucking <laughs> white racist slave owners get obliterated in Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. And now the people who are responsible for the end of his childhood and his innocence and this is going to sound terrible. But actually, without this moment, Hollywood may not go the way it goes in the 70s, may not actually inspire him to become the filmmaker he is. So I know that's awful to say that the death of one person, which ends the flower child, mm -hmm. the seven or sex, all, all that, that would then turn into the 70s and a more grittier, darker reality that led even into the 80s, was all because of this one night in 1969 in August. It changed everything. It, you know, ends a whole spectrum of stuff. But people give him a lot of shit for the violence he portrays on these women. The woman that he slams into the mantelpiece. She's the one who stabbed, cut out the baby of Sharon Tate in real fucking I life. So, all you pearl-clutching motherfuckers out there, one, it's an actress. Brad Pitt didn't actually kill her. She actually didn't have her face smashed in. She's no. alive and well today, I hope. I mean, I don't know what she's done since then, but at least she didn't die in this film. No. So, so, not that day. No. So if she's died since, it's not because of the film. You're having this pearl-clutching, oh, poor me, oh, my God, she's a victim. No. Oh, Tarantino's brutal women. No. Not at all. That's if he wanted to be brutal to women, day. he would have had Stuntman Mike rape those girls first, then kill them. Yes. He never did anything like that. He doesn't do anything. Rapists get fucked up in his movies as well. People who get the most violent acts happen to him are people that he feels deserved it. And since history didn't give it to him, he's giving it to him in a fake way. And to have any kind of remorse or sadness for these motherfuckers that are in a film, first off, but for these motherfuckers? Really? So if you're upset that a woman got her face smashed in, who the woman that they're portraying is someone who cut a woman's baby is. out, you're a fucking idiot. I didn't see you get all teary-eyed when fucking Hitler's face was obliterated. So it's, geez, no. you didn't get sad for that. <laughs> fucking idiots. So I just want to know your feeling, because we're both of the same generation, so we know what it is. So I can understand maybe some of the younger, but you know what? Fucking educate yourself before you fucking yes. open your mouth sometimes. I know. know what the fuck you're talking about because you sound like a fucking idiot when you say right. you feel bad that Brad Pitt is face fucking this girl's face <laughs> into the mantelpiece. But this woman in reality, in real life, gutted a woman and took her and cut her unborn baby for no reason. For, for exactly like for no reason. no reason. Yeah, just 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 marched into their house and did that. And she I mean, I mean you well, know. it was uh, Manson's desire to make it look like black people did it, right? And try to start a race war. That was mm -hmm. the real reason that that happened. So right. I hope you still feel bad for them, all you pro clutching fucking idiots out there. <laughs> Trigger warning, but uh, uh, in real life, Sharon Tate pleaded for her, for the life of her baby and, and that lady that's that we're just talking about said nah and took the knife and, and killed her and cut, cut the baby out. So yeah. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Scott. When I was in the movie theater, I was cheering and I was oh, like, me too. I shouldn't be, but I am. Thing is, is it's not Cliff Booth. Maybe the thing, maybe the thing in the book with his wife. Okay. I will be on your side if yeah, you're like, that's ooh, different. that's a little, yeah. they didn't make it in the movies. Although it still would have been, a, like, I don't want to give away how it goes, but the ending of that is kind of funny. I don't want to go how it goes. People <laughs> are going to, I'm probably going to get hate mail now, but <laughs> I'm not about, and if anyone, if you know Tarantino, he is not about treating women brutally. I will admit, Daisy Domergue gets pretty yeah. ass whooped. If you listen to my podcast, he wrote an entire second script that only he read so that he could actually feel good about hanging her at the end of The Hateful Eight. 
So Daisy Diamond is not a good person. None of those people were good people. That's why they all died in that film. All right. Yeah. All the other women in his stories have gotten a chance to get revenge, have gotten a chance to at least get a comeuppance, have got their day in the sun. He does not write women in bad lights for the most part. Now, he gives them the opportunity to be villains, and there are a couple of them that we are glad die. But again, the bride didn't get fucking, she got raped. And what happened to the people who did that to her? Mm-hmm. I got bucked up. And the people who tried to take her child, what happened to them? She cut through 88 of them. <laughs> that's, that's Bill and Tell Bud. So get your head out of your asses, folks. He is very pro-women. But this is his way of getting back at people who did something terrible. I mean, he made Sharon Tate. And I think this was a great comment that my friend Sean had when we were talking about this. I don't know how we got into it in the last podcast, but we did. A lot of people don't know that she died the way she did. So a lot of people's lasting image of who Sharon Tate is is from this movie and the great job that Margot Robbie did playing her. So he gave her a real, true, great send-off and that now most people were thinking of her from this film. And he got fucking revenge, even though it's not real revenge, on the people who partaked in this violence. I mean, if you didn't like what happened to this girl, wait till we talk about Sadie in a second. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm wondering why people thought that didn't know the story. Well, yeah, they, they went in blindly not knowing and didn't realize that this was based... Uh, look, the parts that are based on actual events is obviously the real person of Sharon Tate and right. Roman Polanski being there, that section. These people, Rick and Cliff, are not no, no, real no, people. Course. None of that is really real. Basically, the stuff that kind of Sharon's going through is real. And then at what part of the ending of the movie where he brings up Once Upon a Time, did you not know it's a fairy tale? Yeah. You know, I mean, that, and that was the genius of how he ended the film was we didn't get the, the title in the beginning. He waits to the end perfectly to then we all know that's not how it ends, but then it was like Once Upon a Time. Like another, there could have been a time yeah. where this was the actual ending of this. Well, <laughs> well, okay. Maybe it's a little extreme. Maybe, maybe mine is the, the giallo violence, but... Um, <laughs> but... I mean, in consideration of what the real violence was that day, is it any worse? I think this is more tamed down violence yeah. than what truly happened on the day in August of 1969. It's actually they get they come up and instead of killing innocent people, they they break into a house and then they get what you know is coming to them. Yes, they meet Brandy and they meet Cliff Booth, and let me tell you what. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I mean, just you know, I, I live in the South, okay, and and I know how people are down here, and especially and even more so in Texas. You come into somebody's property with a weapon. I'm sorry, but if you get, if something bad happens to you, oh, well, too bad. You know, shouldn't have done that. You know, in, in Texas, it's completely legal to kill that person. I think Texas just wants to kill people. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> just want to Exactly. That's what it is. It's like, I don't own these guns for nothing. I don't think they don't want you to come on the property. I think they're itching for you to come, come on, on your come property. A hundred percent. You're not going to be able to tell me differently. There's I, just I, no, I, there's no way. I just know I, it. I, 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 I've, I've been around people. those people. Yeah. I've I know been around some people them. down. Yeah. I have friends down here that kind of have that mentality. I have this gun, that gun, this, uh, you know, AK, whatever. Come, come in All I will tell you, and I will say this to people, there are people out there, I know you've got your guns and you go to your gun range and you feel pretty strong. But there are people out there who've actually used guns in real life who know some things. I'm just saying, just because you're behind your door closed at night and you got your little shooters next to you doesn't mean you're going to get to them in time because there are people out there who can get to you before you get to your guns. Just keep that in mind when you think you're safe because you got your flag over your bed and you got your 72 guns around you. That's all I'm saying. There are people out there smarter than you. Anywho, speaking of guns, when Sadie fires the gun and Cliff drops, did you think when you first saw it, and maybe you didn't even notice it, that he got shot? 
Because rewatching yeah. again today, she fires the gun and then Cliff goes down. I thought so. He does. Obviously, we realize he passes out from right. some of the blood loss. But and, you don't know. But you don't know. And it's weird because I don't remember that. Until I was rewatching it today, I watched it twice. Yeah. I was like, it's like, oh, shit. I don't remember how I thought about it in the theater. Yeah, I don't either. But but just today, I was kind of like, oh, shit. Now I can see why that may look like he got shot. Well, you didn't know. That's the thing. You, you, you didn't know because you didn't actually see him get shot. But... It, there's this thought in your mind, like, is he? Because if you know Tarantino, he, he kills uh, main yes. characters all the time. Yeah, you know, like Vincent. You know, Vincent gets shot. You know, et cetera, et cetera. We have so so many examples. Uh, Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Are you done? Are you done? <laughs> this thing is fired. He's shot. You're like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> the coolest guy in the show got killed. The fuck? This is bullshit. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all so, the time. So you know that's that can happen. So you're right. I, I didn't I didn't think about that. But yeah, probably in the theater I wasn't sure. I'm like, it, it, it's confusing because so many things are happening. And well, yeah, because then she goes she goes out the fucking slider. She just runs through glass, and yes. you don't have enough time to think about. Is he dead? Because she shoots, turns, he falls over. We see him at the ground, and then she goes out the glass, and then she's in and the pool. And then you go, oh, shit, that's Rick, Rick is fucking, there. It's right. You forget Rick's there. Yeah. <laughs> With his fucking giant headphones. His and radio he, goes in the water. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes, what the fuck? <laughs> it's no idea what's happening. He's good at comedy. Like Leo, Leo and Brad Pitt. They, they were that, electric in this movie yeah. together. The moment Rick crawls out of the pool, now I don't know if you knew this or how you felt. I knew he was going for the flamethrower. And I'll ask you if you knew, but the reason I knew that is, as we talked about, that whole moment of showing us the 14th fist of McCluskey was intentional. Yes. But we he threw us off that scent with the, it's, it's too high, there's something you can do about it. And he's like, Rick, mm -hmm. it's a flamethrower. Threw us off the scent of it. We just yeah. thought, funny little behind the scene moment of Hollywood actors. We get to see this big, tough guy on TV, can't handle it in real life kind of thing. Too, too high. Throw us <laughs> off the scent. Later the next day, which would technically be the second act of this film, because the first act is uh, it's that Saturday that they go into that Saturday evening that he meets and they have the little thing and we meet Brandy and all that stuff. The second part of the film is that Sunday where he's on the set and we get the flashback and Cliff puts up the antenna and he yep. goes up to Spawn Ranch. And then third act is what they did in Italy till they come home. And in the second act, when he goes up there and Brad Pitt's going to fix, he goes into the tool shed. And look, it's hard to hide a fucking flamethrower. But, but I didn't there. see it the first time. You didn't. I did oh, I saw it. it. And no. as soon as I saw it, I was like... I missed it. I didn't know how it was going to come back. I had no fucking clue. You saw it? I remember seeing it in the theater, yes, and thinking, that's going to be you somehow. But I had no fucking idea how. You know what I mean? Like, I did not know how it was going to back. But I knew, like, he didn't show it to us no. for nothing. And then when Rick gets out of the pool, that moment I go, oh there's my like God, four, he's getting like, flamethrower. Yes. There's like four seconds, I counted. Four seconds. And in those four seconds, your brain is going, wait. What? No. Is he? Wait. Uh-huh. What? And then, and then the Tarantino cues it with the music the from the music. 14th Fist of McCluskey yeah. that he used when he did the scene. And he's shot from, you know, from un, from underneath, you know, Low just, just angle like a shot, movie. the trunk shot, Low basically. Angle. So when the music starts and he marches out with that thing, you're like, oh, no. Yes. <laughs> no, I was like, oh, yes. I was like, because I had been so tired of listening to this motherfucker scream. I couldn't wait for her to die. I was like, this bitch has got to die. I, she's just screaming and and I'm like, she's got to go. And when he comes around the corner with that, and again, this is why I set it up in the first one, is we know he can handle it. Like he said, I practice with this thing two times a day for three hours, whatever it was, for two weeks. And, and you're like, so he's had practice. He knows how to use it. And he comes out with that fucking bet, bet thing. Bet your sweet ass. The bet your sweet ass was me. <laughs> that's, one, that's one shit fuck weapon you don't want to be on the other end of. And she is on the other end of it. I just love it because... And, and he's, just, he's justified because she's shooting at him. She's, she's just shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she, well yeah. 
She's in his house. First off, with a it's gun, 1969. She's a hippie. He's a uh, Hollywood no, actor. No, a no, fucking no. hippie. Yes, she's a fucking hippie. Because Rick <laughs> never says the word hippie uh, without the F word or motherfucking hippie before. It's never a hippie. It's a fucking, fucking hippie. hippies aren't that. You got <laughs> <Because, there. laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, but fucking hippies, like when they pull out of Moussa and Frank, that's first thing he uh, says makes the corner. For, yep. Yeah. Fucking hippies. It's not a hippie. It's a fucking oh. hippie. So, and she's in his house with a gun, shooting the gun. So, hey, guess what? Oh, I'm 100% with him on this. I <laughs> was know? just like, I need a flame fucking thrower. <laughs> Fuck all you want to be gun people. Fuck guns. No one's scared of a gun. You may not even hit them. You may be, you may suck at shooting, but a flamethrower, as Rick Elon says, one that's hurt. one shit fuck <laughs> weapon you don't want to be on the other end of. And Sadie found out the fucking hard way. The burnt or crisp. Oh, just <laughs> fantastic. Just that. It just... Oh man! And we didn't talk was... about Francesca the, the, this whole time. We, we, didn't, we didn't talk well, about Francesca. I mean, because she pops in and out. I mean, she throws a little punch, and she she has a couple she's a funny moments. Don't but... you find she's a little cartoonish? Her, her acting that yes. was cartoonish to me because uh, yes. Brad, Brad Brad reels it in. Brad Brad's nuanced. You know, even though like when when he says, uh, I, I love that he says, I remember you your white little face, and you were on a horsey. Yes. Like, <laughs> But she's also from Italy, yeah. and so you know, I mean, this may not be that far fetched of how she would act. I mean, she's, I mean, she's thrown into a whole new world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's not living in the Hollywood Hills, and she's jet lagged, and all True. of a sudden there are people with knives and shit going on, and so you might be. I mean, she on a horsey. You too <laughs> might be a little fucking that was crazy. Funny. You are on a horsey. Like he's like a kid. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so she so she's completely burned. And and that's when he he calls for Francesca. He, yes, he that's goes when he, check on her. Yes. Well and, she's, and she's perfectly fine. And then the next the next thing we see is Cliff coming to and it's like, oh yes. he's not there. But that's in chapter twenty eight, folks. Yes. You, Correct. Yes. This whole scene takes about nine minutes. Actually, no, eight minutes, eight seconds exactly. Mm-hmm. In chapter markers. As I've said this this is the sixteenth time if you haven't heard it prior to this. Go back and listen to the ones I That's why I, ch- I checked for on. you this time. I, yes. That, I, that's you did. I and Because I, I was like, oh, how do I want to start this? I mean, we could do this from when they pull up and do the whole mechanical. But it's just, right. the, the key is, is the fact that there is this violence that people are just appalled by. This is actually also the longest you go in a film that someone doesn't die. It was the hateful eight prior to this. But this one is over almost two and a half hours before you even anyone really dies. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff that happens in the movie because that's not real death. Those but are the not whole deaths. time you know it's coming. That's the crazy part is nobody dies, but you know it's coming. I know, you know it's know coming, it. but at the time, like we talked about, I wasn't sure how. I knew it was. I knew it was Sharon. I knew you Sharon do, and her friends were going to be the ones. Yeah. I knew that the Manson family was coming and that they were going to do what they did, or we weren't sure how they were going to do it, but it, that's why you and I were tense because we had the backstory. Yeah. And there was a part of us that thought he might do it. And I, I didn't want it. You I didn't, didn't want, want either, it either, but you were like, this is Tarantino. He could do it because you're thinking he's not going to do it. But then you're like, well, fuck it. Tarantino. Just when I think he's not going to do something, he does it. You know, yes. like if the gimp didn't give you the clues you needed to know about Tarantino's right. world, you exactly. Go, nope. Yeah, there was a gimp that I never saw coming. If I had made bets, if someone had put that on a board, I'd be like, <laughs> "What are you talking about? What kind of creep are you?" And then I'd have been so basement, wrong. Yeah. Basement ball gag. Uh, yeah, who's gimp? got basement what? ball gag gimp? And like, fuck <laughs> you. What do you stop? Get out of here, basement ball gag gimp. What are you talking about? And I was saying like, God damn it, the trifecta. He's got he, he hit bingo. That'd be worth more than the Powerball currently is in America. <laughs> you know that fucking trifecta. Now, where do you think this scene ranks in the level of violence? In the Tarantino verse. And I think a little bit comes down to 
the reality of it. I think because you know, like there's a lot of violence in Kill Bill, but we there's nothing at stake, and I don't mean that as like some kind of like what's, it, we know what's happening. Yeah, yes, it's it's action heavy. We know it's we know what it's playing in. It's it's a movie in the Tarantino world. Yes, yes, and so it's not real. We're like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp it's Fiction really is a little more ooh in your face. Django, well, see, Django's a toss up too because as we talked about, That's, Django is cartoonish, <clears throat> but it's also very. True and realistic. All the violence happening to the black actors in this film is That's very what I my notes. true and violent. But everything that happens to the white people is more cartoonish in a revenge to make fun of right. them and to you know get them the deaths that they deserve. So he doesn't he doesn't pull any punches, giving you the facts and the reality of what it was like to be a slave and to live in those times. And then he gave you the great feeling of getting that revenge by destroying them. Kind of like even in um, Death Proof, the first kill, the the that car is violent. You're like, oh boy. So then at the end, when yep. they're whooping his ass, you're, it's like you said, it's cartoonish. You don't feel, you know, they're getting their revenge. So right. where does this fall for you? Well, uh, I had in my notes that it's probably the most violent yes. next to the Mandingo scene. But the Mandingo scene, yeah. we don't really see the hammer. He gives him the hammer and we don't see it happening. You know, we know it's going on. Yep. But I think we see the guy from, you know, we see his back, you know, and he swings the hammer. We don't actually see the head. But like you said, it was setting us up for the, the comeuppance that mm-hmm. uh, uh, the slave owners get in the end. This one is, I think, is one of the most uh, violent, I would say. But yes, no, it's, agreed. It's earned. Agreed. That violence is not gratuitous. Yes. And it's earned from real-life people, which makes it even more uh, powerful, I thought. Imagine if you something happened to, you know, someone dear to you, and, you know, you had an opportunity to get back some of this revenge. And look, we're all at fault for having revengeful thoughts. Like, that's what gets us the worst, you know? I mean, as Hans will say, it can be a force. We don't remember which way you went in, the path of revenge. And, you know, this was Tarantino's way of saying, you took my innocence, you destroyed, you know, maybe he didn't know Sharon Tate as much, you know, until he got older, but what you did to that woman and those people changed this whole place I love. Because it's a love letter to Hollywood until the end. And then it's like, you motherfuckers, I may not have been able to do anything to get revenge on you, but this is how I do it. This is how I want to show you that you ruined my childhood. You ruined this place that I, I fell in love with as a young boy. You changed it because of what you did, because it changed everything from that moment on. I mean, we're not probably having this podcast, sadly to say, without the events of that night. Tarantino may not become a filmmaker. He may not go that route. Because a lot of those movies that come out after that, there's a dark, grittier tone to them because of the events. Life in the 70s gets darker and grittier. You know, life in cities gets darker and grittier. There's it's a big tonal shift. I'm not saying it's just yeah. from this moment. It may have already been headed that way, but this is definitely the tip of the spear that starts that whole trajectory. And I think it's what sends Tarantino into becoming a filmmaker. So it's odd that he's one moment getting revenge for what technically would be possibly the catalyst, or maybe the first domino that falls that puts him on his path. Yeah. You don't think he would have been a, a filmmaker without that? Do we get the films that... When we get Spaghetti West, do we get the films that really inspire him? him? And really, even even like Grindhouse stuff, do we get those dark, gritty films, or other exploitation films, without what happens in 1969? I mean, it's a, it's a question we'll never know. You know what I mean? Like, it's a tree fall in the forest, and no one's there. I don't know. If yeah. I'm not in the forest, how do I fucking know? You know what I mean? Like, so it's one of those, like, what ifs, but it, it could be different. I mean, his life, America could be different. A whole bunch of stuff could be different without the events of that night. Right. I do have this feeling that without that moment, that's a very touchstone moment for him in his life and the way Hollywood would change, the darker stories, like everything. It's weird because we're watching the change, even though that's the, the final pushover in the 
conversation we talked about last week. It's the changing of the old guard. Hollywood is changing. Things are changing. And you know, I, I think the fact that Cliff goes get the flamethrower, it's him taking charge, taking charge of his career and, and going into the, the future. And, you know, instead of being passive and being the villain. He's winning fucking and, fights. Uh, no, he's the hero. <laughs> I, I <don't>... <laughs> yeah. Zoom. <laughs> but, you know, but it, it, don't you see that? Like, it, it, you I get, do. You, you get that, um, you know, it, it's a shift for his life. It is. It's also him fighting against what's coming for he him. He takes control. He's stopping it at the door this time. Right. He's getting him. the best of it this time, you know. So True. it's a great ending to mm. an amazing film. And it's a great ending for our first season of the Bible study on the Church of Tarantino. And that will do it for our Bible studies for season one. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Pat Fournier, host of the B News USA podcast, for joining me again today. Now, you can find the link to Pat's podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. So join me again in two weeks as Elwood Jones, host of the AC Film Club podcast, the Movie and Tea podcast, and the Game War podcast, joins me to help kick off our second season that I'm calling Under the Influence. Each month, myself and my special guests will take an inquisitive look at two films that helped inspire QT's filmography to determine if they influenced him or he blatantly ripped them off. First up is Reservoir Dogs, and the two films we're diving into are City on Fire and The Killing. However, if you are so inclined, please join me again next week as my new panel helps me celebrate the 10th anniversary of Django Unchained. So until next season, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.